And so here we are in Luke uh, chapter 8, verse 22. So far in Luke's Gospel, Luke has told us about the origins of Jesus of Nazareth, and then about various people discovering who Jesus is. At different times they've discovered that he's a teacher, someone who can rebuke demons, someone who heals illnesses, uh, and has victorious debates with experts. In fact, lots of people have heard about Jesus, like this lot. And so crowds have come to see and hear him. And I wonder what the different reasons might be. Perhaps they wanted to hear if he was a better preacher than the local rabbi. And did Jesus know the answers that the local rabbi didn't know? Perhaps they had heard that he had healed this or that person in some other village and came to see if he really could do miracles of healing. Or perhaps even they needed healing themselves and hoped that this was the man who could do it. But whatever their particular reasons for coming, they're all uh, sniffing around the question of who is this Jesus that we've heard about? And when they went away again, of course, they all had some kind of answer to that question. Maybe not always the precise question they were asking, but Jesus loves to give answers to those who ask him. Some of them saw miracles and therefore knew that he could do them. Others were perhaps the actual person that he healed, or like these people, uh, were fed with the five loaves, even though there were 5,000 of them. And so they all have a much better answer to the question, who is Jesus? It's tempting to think that Luke has told the various stories of the different miracles and other events in Jesus' life so far in order of perhaps increasing difficulty. Of course, it might be just the order he thought they happened, but writing 30 years afterwards, perhaps he wasn't quite clear about that. And in any case, he's trying to explain Jesus to us, so he's free to do it in different orders. So we gather he grew up uh, in a family of a carpenter. Uh, And of course, if I made a table and it didn't wobble, that would be fairly miraculous. Um, They discovered later in his adulthood that he was a teacher and perhaps a little later that he was an excellent teacher, that he rebuked spirits and they left people, that he healed sick people. He even healed people without actually being there, but just said, it's going to happen when you get home. Maybe you don't think that's the, uh, the order of difficulty in out of those things. But now he's doing something that is really big. We need to zoom out for a moment before we think about it and look at something, a rather wider topic. Now, the Bible starts by saying that God created everything. And nowadays, not everybody agrees with that. Uh, The standard scientific explanation is that in the beginning there was nothing, then it went bang. And everything follows on from that, partly as a matter of randomness and partly automatically, until we get to where we are today. And I grew up with that so-called scientific view. It's a decent attempt at trying to explain what happened. But while I was a science and engineering type student, I progressively went off the idea. A good illustration of that happened some years later, when we were on holiday in Yorkshire, uh, and um, we were about to go out somewhere from the hotel we were staying in, and I was just watching the morning news, 
when news started coming in that there were various disruptions in London, uh, there were reports of explosions on the underground. Uh, and uh, there was a laptop started saying, well, there's been a power surge, said the London Underground people, which has caused some problem. And uh, then a bus exploded, so nobody believed that anymore. Um, and eventually, um, we ended up realising that some terrorists had blown up four tube, t- tube trains and killed a lot of people. And nobody said, uh, well, that's just life. Things go bang sometimes, don't they? Just like in the beginning. Instead, we were saying, we're going to get the people who did this because we know that things don't just go bang. Now, to make sure I was up to date with the theory of the Big Bang, I went to the BBC website and found a nice picture and an article about this, uh, trying to summarise quite where we are. Because, of course, this theory keeps evolving. People keep finding missing links and finding out additional facts and changing what the theory is. And after going into antimatter and all this kind of stuff, we come up with this wonderful quote. The most we can say with confidence at this stage is that physics has so far found no confirmed instances of something arising from nothing. Nowadays, I agree with the biblical view. There is a God who is a living, intelligent being who decided to make the universe out of nothing and for his own reasons. We have, uh, we return to the picture, but move on quickly because to the next picture we say this uh, in uh, our liturgy, perhaps not today, but in one of the words of the creed, next slide please, um, we say, we believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. And this is different from thinking that God is a being who lives inside the universe like us, but bigger, cleverer and more powerful. So words fail me, so let's have a picture instead. And this is the first picture contrasting the two views. On the left-hand side, we have the view that uh, all the little people who are green today, um, I'm not saying anything, it's uh, representative of all people, whatever colour you actually are. And the red box is the universe, we're in the universe, and somewhere we think there is a being who is God. Maybe we think he's triune, so I've written a triangle for him, and he's bigger than us, more powerful than us, he's out there somewhere. And in contrast, on the right-hand side, is the view that God is outside the universe, and we're inside it, which makes a certain amount of difference. Next slide, please. Now, what which of those we choose has consequences. So, left-hand side, over time we get to discover things. We get to get quite clever, don't we? Uh, We find eventually that we can do things in a laboratory and then inject millions of people with something we've made and they don't get ill anymore. We're really clever. We're just like God, really. Um, you know, if we go on like this, uh, we'll find that we don't need God anymore because we can do all the things we thought he could do in the first place. God gets smaller in our thinking, and he isn't so remote because we're catching up. On the right-hand side, we don't think that at all. On the right-hand side, we realise that God really is outside the universe. Maybe we can make uh, injections that make people not get ill. 
But that was using the abilities that we've been given and built into us to explore the universe in which we've been put uh, and to build things, make things, do good things, bad things as well, but good things like that. And God doesn't get smaller in our mind, but our universe gets better lit up uh, and a place which makes sense. And if we go to the extreme, next slide please, the left-hand side people get a little bit like Brian Cox, uh, who was presenting these stories, and a lot of other people as well, because they get so clever, understand so much, they think God doesn't exist anymore. So their universe consists of them and a big black void. This is what Brian Cox says in that article from the BBC. The last star will slowly cool and fade away. With its passing, the universe will become once more a void, without light or life or meaning. On the other hand, uh, that is not what the world is like. Uh, we uh, learn and explore, we know that we will never be as clever, as powerful as God is, and won't fall into the trap of a seemingly doesn't exist after all, and our lives will have meaning, and the universe will make sense. So this poses a question which is going to matter in a minute. If God created the universe and everything we know in it, what are the limits of what this person can do? Is there anything he can't do? Well, let's get back in the boat then, before it sinks without us doing anything about it. Uh, here we have Jesus in the boat. Uh, I think he's the one at the top. Um, He's holding on to the rigging in case he falls in and he's declaiming, ordering the waves to be quiet and the rest are all bailing out as fast as they can, which clearly isn't fast enough. But I wonder, when he told the waves to be quiet and stop the wind to stop blowing, did he wake up and uh, think, oh, well, dear, it's a terrible storm. I'd better tell you to shut up and be quiet, like in the picture. Or did he sort of think, oh, yeah. The story, I'll be quietly gone. Because he's got the power, hasn't he, in the story and doesn't need to do anything terribly dramatic to achieve anything. He got up, rebuked the wind and the waves, and they were quiet. And then he asks the question, Where is your faith? he asks his disciples. So here are some places their faith might have been. Now, we know that some of the disciples were by trade fishermen, so they knew about boats and they'd been sailing on this lake for years, probably went out with their fathers before that, and so they probably thought, this is a doddle, we'll get in the boat and we'll hoist the sail and do whatever else you have to do to make it go, and we'll sail across no problem. Uh, and the others in the boat who weren't fishermen knew that the first lot were fishermen, so their faith was that uh, these fishermen know what they're doing and the boat's capable of going across, so we'll let them get on with that. Human abilities in both cases. Once the problem started and they realised they were sinking, that their seamanship wasn't enough for the situation, perhaps they thought about the God of Abraham, whom they thought they were serving under Jesus' leadership, Perhaps he would help out, like it says in the Psalms in various places, particularly Psalm 69, for example, where I haven't got time to stop there for a moment, but the endless instances of the, the God they knew rescuing people in trouble, and here they are in trouble. 
And then they woke Jesus in panic. It doesn't actually say here that they asked him to do anything, or we don't know, therefore, if they had any expectation that he would. But if they did have any such expectation, their faith was in Jesus, which was an interesting place to put it, because at that point they hadn't quite realised who Jesus was. So why did he ask the question, where is your faith? Because it's the most important thing they're going to learn from this story. Of course, next slide please. Um, to borrow a phrase from uh, James Allison Taylor from the last century, having a great faith in God, which is what they need, is not the same as having a faith in a great God. And if you're paying attention, you'll realise I said that back to front. Uh, it is important to have a faith in a great God, because it is God who has the power to still the waves or do whatever is the matter in hand. Having a great faith in God is fine, but our faith falters sometimes, or goes on the blink at the critical moment when we're in a panic or something. But God is constant, and having faith in God himself, because God is great, God is powerful, God is faithful, is the important thing. Now, not only do we say the words of the creed periodically, we also um, sing a song, especially at Christmas, uh, where some of the words go like this. Christ, thy highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. This is a strange thing, isn't it? Here is Jesus, God the Son, come to earth on a special mission, but he's in disguise. He looks like a man. People mistake him for a man. People overlook him for that because of this disguise. And only some see through it now and again. Later on in his Gospel, Luke writes this, that Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. and No one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so we see that God the Son is being revealed selectively to people, uh, but not to others. And that's a big topic, but it's a topic for another day. Today we're thinking about how this passage informs our understanding of our life of discipleship. Our discipleship is a journey of discovery, just like the disciples' discipleship in those three years and afterwards, of course, was a journey of discovery. They travelled round with him, different things happened, he taught them things on different days, they saw things on different days, they realised things on different days, and they were on a sort of course. If it lasted three years, it's just like a degree course, isn't it? They were learning things as they went along, and Luke is writing his book telling us those things, and we're learning them as we go through it. 
And our life is the same. We are walking with Jesus, things happen. We learn things progressively as we go along. Occasionally we see miraculous things, we have prayers answered, we have prayers refused, good and bad things happen. And all along, what he's doing is teaching us who he is and building our faith and building our discipleship as we move on to the next thing and the next thing through our lives. So if our discipleship is like that, then the incidents that will occur to us will be like uh, the incidents that occurred uh, during uh, this incident that we read about. So, left-hand side of this picture, the disciples. First of all, we know that Jesus called them to follow him in general. That's why they were with him at all over the three years. Uh, And they have decided to follow. And in particular, they followed him into the boat on that journey because he said, let's go in the boat. Then comes the big problem. The storm is too big for their seamanship. They're bailing out and whatever to deal with. And they realise that they can't fix it. But because they know that they're with Jesus, doing what Jesus said, because he called them, they know that he must have the solution. What about our situation? Well, uh, we are following Jesus, I suppose, uh, in general. I hope the answer to that is yes. The particular situation we're thinking about, we hope, is where we're supposed to be. Of course, it is possible to do something uh, that you think is God's will, but to be mistaken about it or to be mistaken about the details of it, if not altogether. So maybe that's why there's a problem with it, if it's not really what he's called us to do. But assuming we check that out, and we're sure that is the case, we do then have a big problem. And what's our big problem? Well, probably we aren't in a boat sinking, although who knows. Uh, I'm looking at Ken there, (laughs) hoping he's not sinking next time he's on the boat. Uh, But more probably we're doing something inland. And... If we can't fix it with the resources that we've been given to hand, and it's Jesus' will that we were there in this situation, then Jesus must have the solution, mustn't he? I asked the question before, uh, is there anything that the God who made the universe cannot do? So next slide, we get back to the lake and their question, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. And when they think about that, they realise a bit more. He is the God who made the universe. Are there any limits to what he can do? 